Well, greetings, everybody. Welcome once again to the Rec Poker Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Fredland, and as always, we are sponsored by Running Aces, Racetrack, and Casino. This is episode number 148, and today we're featuring Jonathan Little. Uh, many of you know him. He's a friend of the show. He's an author. He's a coach. He's a player. He's fantastic, and I think you're really going to enjoy this discussion today as we focus on playing against limpers, especially in lower buy-in tournaments and especially in early in the tournament. So I think you're going to enjoy that. Uh, just a couple of quick announcements. Our Running Aces Players of the Week this week, Anthony Wilson, B. Yang, myself, and Brian Morey pick up some bonus lammers for our points that we've earned this week. And also I want to mention that Rec Poker is now live, rec.poker. So go out there. All of the information is out there. All the links are out there. Everything you need at rec.poker. So check that out. Quick update on our NFL Survivor Pool. We only have 41 people left in that thing. And remember, the top three are going to get some prizes. So make sure you get your picks in, and we'll see what happens. I still got a team, my, my league going with 41 people left. A couple of upcoming things. Monday nights now, we've started at 8 o'clock p.m. Central every Monday night. We're going to be doing a 20-minute, just an open chat, what is rec poker, talk about the community. And then at 8.30, whoever wants to join us, especially beginning players, can, can come in there. It's just an open discussion with myself, and we'll be talking about different elements of the game, whatever you're struggling with, whatever questions you have, how to play at a casino, what sort of strategy, poker math, whatever it is, uh, you can join us out there. Just an open discussion, uh, especially geared toward beginning players. Uh, September 25th, uh, Wednesday night, we're going to have our second in our series of book studies. Uh, Andrew Brokus's book, Playing Optimal Poker, will be covering chapters two and three out there. So members, you're welcome to join us. Also that night from 8 to 9.30 p.m., we're going to have a 90-minute Q&A with Matt Berkey. Uh, that's available for all, for all members to come out there and join in that conversation, ask any questions you have of Matt. Uh, that's going to be a great time. Next Monday night, September 30th, we're going to be interviewing Daniel Negranu. Uh, and again, if you're a member of the Rec Poker community, you can be part of that interview. So uh, make sure you sign up. Even if it's just a free trial, uh, you can get the link to join us in on that conversation. And then that following Wednesday, October 2nd, is our monthly home game on Poker Stars, where we play for fabulous prizes uh, and try to knock off Taylor Moss, who is our defending champion. So stay plugged in uh, through the Rec Poker community, the email list, Twitter, Facebook, any of those things. And you can find out what's going on there. All right, everybody. Well, as promised, we are here with Jonathan Little, who you know. He's a friend of the show. Uh, he's a coach. He's an author. He's a player. What, what else do you do? I mean, if I were to describe you as a you know, coach, author, player, what else do we got here? A, a, a dad, a husband? I'm a dad. I'm a commentator. Yesterday, I commentated <laughs> for 14 hours for the World Poker Tour. That was a nice long time. And um, I do a lot of stuff with poker. You do. <laughs> if, if, so like, let's, let's break this down. Let's say, okay, you've got, you've got the commentating, you've got the coach, author and playing. Is there, is there even a favorite or do you just like the diversity of it all? Or what do you, what do you love doing more than anything? I like the diversity of it all. Um, I enjoy running my business. I have a site, pokercoaching.com. I also am heavily involved with DNB publishing, which is another business, right? So I enjoy the business side of the game, trying to figure out how to use your skills to help as many people as you possibly can. Because whenever you play poker, you're usually just playing for yourself, right? Whereas whenever right. you are doing business related things, it, it scales very well. So I'm always trying to figure out how to spend some of my time to help lots and lots of people for some of their time. I love it. And you're, you know, you're, you're, 
you obviously you you span a vast audience, but uh, for rec poker and our our folks, you know, most of us are recreational players. Some folks only play home games, some play bar leagues, mm-hmm. some play small casino buy-ins. And then, you know, there's obviously all the way up to the WSOP main event. So there's there's a why, but it's primarily recreational players. And you've done a lot of writing and a lot of work really geared toward the recreational player, or at least very digestible by the recreational player, which we appreciate. Well, you're welcome. It's important to make sure that people can understand what you're trying to say, because otherwise it's not so useful. I mean, you'll find a lot of people in, in like academia and high level poker, they speak in a manner that is not easy to understand or it's not understandable at all. And that's not very useful. Um, a lot of people try to sound smart and that's what they, that's the reason why they teach. They teach to stroke their ego. Right. I teach to try to help people. And those are two very different things. I love it. Well, you do a great job. So I just, you know, on behalf of Rec Poker Nation, thank you. I know obviously there's a vested interest in the business. You're making money from it, but Still, uh, it's very appreciated by by all of us. So thank you. You're, you're welcome. I, I design the things that I wish I had when I was getting started. So yeah. it's, um, and then even today, like with my training site, I design the stuff that I want. I'm in a position where I can pay some of the best players in the world to make content for me. And I hire the people that I want to learn from. I think my kids are yelling outside. I apologize. Sorry, no, if you, if you have to run, feel free to take care of that deal. They're supposed to be being taken care of right now. <laughs> right. If you want, I can go tell them to be quiet. No, it doesn't bother me at all, man. We're, we're rec players. We have real lives. We're real people. So it doesn't bother me at all. But if there's something you need to take care of, just feel free to jump out of there. and I'll be okay. Okay, cool. So, well, let's before we get into the, the kind of the meat on today, let's talk a little bit about that, your coaching site, I guess. Um, you know, I, I know you're not one to say, hey, I want to talk about myself all the time. You just wanted to talk content. But I want to give you that platform to talk about your content because it is obviously it's world class. And what we talk about with our stuff is we're not trying to compete on content. We just tell people there's a lot of world-class content out there that if you're just looking for content, go out there, go check out Jonathan Little's stuff. So tell people about your site and what you have going and what might be appealing to sort of rec poker nation. My training site is pokercoaching.com. You can go there and get a free trial membership to see if you like it. But there are a few aspects of the site. One is quizzes. We have interactive quizzes that are like, imagine I sit you down at an online table because that's how we have to replay hands. And basically you play through a hand and every decision, we give you a score one to 10. And I will tell you, or one of the coaches will tell you what they think about all the possible options. So it's kind of like having a coach with you at the table for every decision. There are over 600 quizzes there and we're adding many, many more each month. Um, I, along with a bunch of other you know, cash game pros and tournament pros are uploading content for small stakes all the way up to the high stakes. So there are tons and tons of quizzes. Also, there is a monthly homework challenge where I will present a question like, say they fold you in the cutoff seat. What is your strategy? And a lot of people say, well, what is your hand? Well, it depends on, you're really not trying to play your hand, you're trying to play your range, right? Yeah. So you have to say how you're going to play your whole range pre-flop. Let's say you raise and the big blind calls, flop comes, whatever. Nine, seven, three, they check. What is your strategy with each hand in your range? And we go through the turn and the river and then I go through and look through all of the homework answers and try to pick up the mistakes that most of the people are making. And then I go through my answer and go through the common mistakes that a lot of people are making. And you're going to find that usually there are 10 or 15 variations of the answer. Usually some people are too tight, too passive, too loose, too maniacal and figure out where you slot in and don't make those same mistakes. Right. And then also I have a bunch of 30 minute long videos on specific topics. So we have a ton of classes there where I present on a specific topic. We have um, Poker Coaching Premium that has access to over 100 of those 30-minute classes as well as a lot of um, like training materials like I just released a cash game course that is 
29 parts. It's uh, quite long, quite in-depth, but if you get through it, you'll be very well-versed at cash games and able to beat most games you encounter up to get to the very high stakes. So I tried to make learning easy for whatever way you want to learn, right? Some people want to get in there and play. Some people want to really do the nitty-gritty studying. Some people just want to sit back and watch a presentation. And I get that. So uh, I try to make it easily digestible for everyone. We also have um, various tools, like we have lots of range charts, really whatever, you, anything you need to actually succeed at poker long-term, it is there. That's so good. Yeah, I mean, I've checked it out. It's, it's fantastic stuff. And I just encourage everybody, go check that out. You know, we're doing certain things at Rec Poker. We're trying to build community and have those conversations and help people make connections and build relationships as they learn together. And, you know, that's part of it. But, uh, you know, from a pure content perspective, what you're doing out there for the prices that you're charging is really an unbelievable bar- bargain. So uh, people go check that out. Uh, yeah, I mean, I designed most stuff to be free. I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of it is free. Yeah, there, there can't be a better price than free. And you can get my <laughs> audiobooks at jonathanlilpoker.com slash free if you never sign up for Audible. And I have my weekly podcast. I have my morning show where I answer whatever questions you have. So I try to do so much stuff free to the point that if you ever want to really take your game to the next level, I'm going to be the person you think of. And I have all of that there as well. Love it. Love it. Great stuff. Well, let's, let's chat a little bit. Uh, we, have, we have Andrew on the line too. So Andrew, f- feel free to jump in. But one of the things what we've been doing, Jonathan, is we've been, I guess, defining a, you know, a topic or two of the month. So a lot of the stuff that we're doing, a lot of the conversations we're having, the book studies, all of these things have sort of a tie into a certain topic. And this month, we've been focusing on a couple of different topics. One is playing those small suited aces out of the blinds. And another one is around playing against limpers, because this is the one thing as I survey our rec poker nation, a lot of things that come up all the time is people get so frustrated or they get confused on how do I play, especially early in tournaments, especially these, you know, 50 to $150 tournaments at the local casino where everybody's limping. It's just a limp fest. And, you know, people get torn between, should I just join in on that and just hope to hit big because I know I'll get paid off? Should I be raising to 15x to try to punish these limpers when I pocket jacks or, you know, just these general concepts, but then obviously we get into some of the specific situations, but that's where I'd love to kind of pick your brain on some of that. I know you've actually written about some of this too, but just how, what should be our perspective when we're entering into these, uh, you know, these tournaments and we're at a table and immediately we recognize everybody just, you know, wants to see every hand and they don't want to pay very much for it. Yeah. You should always ask, what are people doing incorrectly? So it sounds like these players we are presuming are playing too many hands pre-flop, right? So if that's the case, if they will let you see the flop cheaply, try to see the flop cheaply with hands that flop very well. That's going to be stuff like suited aces. I actually was just making a quiz for poker coaching and there were two limps in a $3,500 tournament and I had ace five suited in middle position. And that's a spot where some people just raise every time, but I think it's a pretty big mistake because if you limp and someone else yet to act raises, you can easily call, try to see a great flop. If you get to see a cheap flop, that's also fine. And the only way this really goes poorly for you is if you raise and then someone else re-raises you, right? right? And so just don't raise in the first place. Then it can't really go poorly for you. And yes, you give up the potential to have pre-flop fold equity, but in exchange for that, you get to play very deep stacked against presumably wide ranges that are going to play poorly post-flop. So I'm usually pretty happy just to see a decent amount of flops with hands that flop well. Um, but I think a lot of people think some hands flop well that don't. Like some people like 9-8 offsuit, for example. That is not a hand to see a flop with, unless maybe you're on the button. But even then, it's going to make middle pair bad kicker, right? Most of the time. You really want middle pair bad kicker multi-way? Right. The answer's no, you don't. So 
I'm probably playing a little bit tighter than most people do against the limpers and also a little bit more passively because I don't mind seeing flops mostly in position with hands that flop very well. With your best hands, you do want to raise. And if they'll call your 15 big blind raise, and they actually will, well, then maybe you should raise even bigger, right? Just continue extracting more value with the hand that stands to be the best. And I get the idea that if, say, it goes limp, 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 and you have jacks and you make it realistically 10 big blinds and they all call you, realize what just happened is you put in, let's say there's four players total, you put in 25% of the money, but you own 33% of the pot. Right. So you made money. And then post-flop, it's often not going to go well for you, but it doesn't need to go well for you all that often, right? You're probably only going to win this hand a third of the time or so, and you have to be good enough to not just blast your money in every time. What happens to a lot of people is it comes 9-8-3, and they bet when they check when they get checked to, which is fine, and then somebody will raise, and then they just put all their money in, and right. then they're dead. And they're like, oh, man, I always get outdrawn. It's like, yeah, stop paying them off, right? <laughs> I mean, you don't have to just lose your stack every single time you have a decently strong hand. It's important to realize when you have a marginal hand, right? I talk about this a lot on my site. You have a premium hand, a draw, a marginal hand, or junk, and multi-way, an overpair kind of becomes a marginal hand whenever you're facing a lot of aggression, and especially against these players who play very passively, because a lot of limpers just want to see the nuts and then put their money in. They don't, they don't, they're not raising with junky draws or you know, marginal made hands. Like say it comes 983, a lot of people aren't just check raising all in with king nine, they're usually just check calling with king nine. And they're not check raising jack seven for a gut shot and overcard, right? They're just not doing it. So they, when they're raising, they usually do have a set or two pair and well, you're dead against the set or two pair. So you should be folding. So you have to learn to play well after the flop. And most people just want to complain about getting it in slightly ahead pre-flop and then losing. Right, yeah. And then talking about the donkey who called him with nine eight. Yeah, look at that donkey who called with nine eight. And then they don't realize, yeah, I gave the guy 15 to one implied odds post-flop when I Gave him 200 big blinds. Gave him 200 big blinds, right, exactly. So I think, I think you know, what you said in there is sort of a port, an important piece, too, of saying, okay, if you, you put in 25% of the pot, but you own 33% of the equity, that's a great mathematical thing. So you actually are winning in that situation. Mm-hmm. But I think for people to realize 33% equity is still one out of three. Like, mm-hmm. you're still supposed to win, supposed to lose that hand two out of three times when it's four-handed, you know, if those, if those numbers are correct. And I think that's what people kind of lose sight of is they, they get so married to this. I put the money in with the best hand, you know, I should win, you know, 70% of the time. People have an unreal, unrealistic expectation of hand equities, I think. And you're using the word should. Right, exactly. Entitlement. I am entitled to this. Yes. Like this should happen, but there's variance. We're playing a game where there's a lot of variance and you have to accept that, right? And I mean, when you're only going to win 33% of the time, four ways, you're going to go like 12 times in a row sometimes and lose all of them. Right. That's just normal. Get used to it. You have to accept that you are going to have downswings and upswings. And the thing is, they never remember whenever they just continuation about the flop and everybody folds, right? Right. Oh, yeah. That was supposed to happen. Well, that's human nature. That's the psychology. You know, you've got the, the, you know, the good things are like Teflon. They, They fly off right away. And the bad things are like Velcro. They stick. And I think that's no more apparent than in the poker world. You're right. And people just have to get over the idea that they think they, that something is supposed to happen. I mean, when you play a poker tournament, you're supposed to lose, right? Right. And yes. a lot of people don't think they're supposed to win. It's the exact opposite of what they think is supposed to happen. Right. And then every once in a while you get lucky and you run hot and in cash games. Yeah. In theory, if you're playing better, you're going to win more often than you don't. When I used to play a ton of cash games, I would win about half of my sessions, but my winning sessions were usually about twice the size of my losing sessions, which is fine. So half of the days I would go home with less money than I started with. And that's just fine with me. And 
like you have to ask, why do I care about having winning sessions or always being at the top of my graph? And it, it just doesn't matter. It's all irrelevant. As long as you were playing well and extracting value over and over and over again. Do you think that, uh, that most people in your circles or that, you know, keep track of their results in a detailed enough level to actually know if they're a winning or losing player. And I know the, the law of large numbers says we're never going to actually know because we never play enough to actually know what our true, you know, expected value is at least those of us who only play live. But you know, that, that's one of the things that I run into all the time with people that are, that are trying to give me numbers on, on their results and how they, they get beat here and they get beat here and they, nobody ever tracks anything. What's your, well, everyone I know tracks the results. Um, yeah, yeah. If you're not tracking your results, you're probably not playing very well because well, that's where I'd love to, yeah, I'd love for you to speak to that because I mean, I'm, I speak on blue in the face and every time yeah. somebody comes, comes up and tells me their results and I ask them any sort of, you know, you know, what's your in the money percentage, what's your ROI, any of these things, nobody actually knows it. They're guessing. And so I say it all, I talk about it all the time. I don't know how you track progress. I don't know how you track results. I don't know how you ever get investors or whatever if you don't actually have something on paper and I don't know what other message to give to people. So maybe you can help people understand the value in, uh, in actually keeping track of their results, especially tournament players. Well, especially for tournament players, if you live in a place where they tax you, you sure better have correct amounts to write off whenever you win. Because imagine you win a tournament for $50,000 one day. You'd like to be able to write off all those losses, right? Right. And if you don't have results for that, you can't do that. So, just from a pure monetarily or monetary perspective, you should have an idea of if you're winning or losing. But also, especially if you're playing poker recreationally, like my dad plays recreationally, he keeps track of all of his wins, wins and losses. He has an Excel sheet on his computer. It's nothing fancy. Yep. Every day he just goes home, writes down the buy-in, writes down the cash. Nothing fancy. And then at the end of the year, you know how much you bought in, you know your return on investment, and that's not even hard to do. That's easy. That takes literally 10 seconds. Right. At the end of the day, you don't have to play with anything on your smartphone or anything. It's about as low tech as you can have it. And you just, you must do that. If you are not doing that, you don't know if you are winning or losing. And, you know, there is a ton of variance, especially in live tournaments, just because you don't get to put in a big sample. But as you play more and more events, you get closer and closer to what your actual win rate is. And it's also important to realize in live tournaments that your win rate varies a lot based on the particular event. Like... Uh, very often in a side event, your return on investment is going to be smaller than in a main event. And that's because in a lot of main events, there are a lot of satellite qualifiers or people who are just taking a shot, right? Right. So the idea of what is my ROI across the board doesn't really make a whole lot of sense because unless you're playing the exact same game all the time or a very similar game all the time, it's going to be all over the place. Um, I mean, a good example of this is I, like say I'm playing a $25,000 tournament in Florida and then the next day I play a $5,000 tournament in Florida with infinite satellite qualifiers. One is going to have a way higher return on investment than the other. So you can't say on average it's this because it doesn't really work like that. But over time, if you just talk to other players who are of comparable skill level of you, you know roughly what their ROIs are across the board. And you start to figure out what is a reasonable expectation for your ROI, even though, like say the higher stakes games that you play, maybe you haven't played very many of them, but if you know a hundred peers who have all played some each, you can start to figure out roughly what you should expect if you're very good. And then if you're not very good, you're gonna have a lower ROI. Well, right. And I think that's what, that's what I've always struggled with is, well, is this good? Is this good? Is Where does this fit? You know, I'm a, I'm a mathematician, so I can kind of figure out, well, if it's a standard normal distribution, here's where people would lie and you know, you're this percentile, whatever. But 
you still don't really know. And that's where, I mean, I've even offered for people say, Hey, you just send me your result every day. I'll track it for you. You know, <laughs> friends of mine, I'm like, cause let's make it even easier than having your own spreadsheet. You just tell me I played a $150 tournament. I got $383 back. I'll track it, you know, but, but people don't want to do it. And I know uh, I've, I've tried to actually institute something where uh, I do more of this for more players, for more recreational players as part of a um, kind of a casino bonus sort of thing, or, you know, kind of a value added program for people. And, and, you know, the, we get pushback all the time that we really don't want people to know what their win rates are because most people are very, uh, very have a very uh, skewed perception of what their win rate is relative to the actuality. It's like when you ask people, Hey, what's your average game in bowling? People will tell you 160 because they forget about all the nineties they got, you know, their average is 120 or something like that. So, I, you know, that's sort of one of those things that, that pushback I get where we really don't want people to know how much they're actually losing every year. No, casinos do not want you to know what you're losing because <laughs> that creates bad feelings. Casinos right. typically do a pretty great job of making you feel pretty good about losing, which is <laughs> a very difficult thing to do if you think about it, right? <laughs> right? Because you're going there, you're just straight up losing your money to play a game that is, you know, fun, but certainly not the most fun game ever invented, and at least in my opinion. And, um, and you're happy to do it. So they don't want to do anything that causes bad feelings, which is why you see them very often bending over backwards to make the players happy and giving bonuses and all this business because, uh, you know, they want to, want to keep coming back. And if right. you know that every time you show up, you lose $40, you may stop going back. Unless you just love playing, in which case maybe you keep going back. Yeah, it comes back to what's your motive, What's your reason for playing, right? Are you right. playing for fun, for community, for the, the norm at Cheers sort of experience? Or are you playing to make money? That that's a critical thing that we talk about quite a bit. Is what what is the reason that you're playing? Yeah, and if you are not keeping track of your results, you definitely are not playing to win. Believe it or not, I mean, you can go ahead and just set that in stone that you are not playing to maximize your expectation. You are playing to have a good time, and there's nothing wrong with that. Right. You may think you're playing to win, but your actions do not indicate that you actually care if you win or lose. All right. Okay. So, so rec poker nation. Now you've heard it from, you've heard it from Jonathan little. Now I've, I've said it multiple times. If you're not keeping track of your results, how do you know that you're improving? How can you compare yourself to others? How do you, how do you make changes in your game? How can you see the impact of those changes? I don't know. I don't know how people do it. I guess I well, don't, they don't care to, they don't scare, care to maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. And that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, part just, of poker is the ability to hang out and have a good time. And absolutely, you know, say you do go to the casino every day and you lose 40 bucks. I mean, that's the same price as going to the movies or, yeah. I mean, it, it, you can spend your $40 a day entertainment money doing lots of things and playing poker is a perfectly fine way to go about doing it. That right. said, if your goal is to become better at the game, then you need to treat it a little bit more professionally. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. Well said. So, so back to the limping thing, another question on that, uh, man, I could talk to you for hours. So I'm trying like, ah, shotgun, shotgun stuff. Um, you know, back to the limping thing you mentioned, um, you know, maybe, maybe kind of joining in the limping parade, if it makes a lot of sense, if you have hands that could flop, well, your, your suited connector, suited gap or suited aces, that kind of stuff. Uh, do you ever get, get to the point where you're actually are open limping in those situations or is it still sort of your rule to not open limp? I don't do much open limping. I mean, there, there are times where you should consider it. Usually it's when you're a medium stack, very deep in a tournament, like 40-ish big blinds. Basically, whenever you don't want to raise and get re-raised. Right. But if you're structuring your initial opening range well, you don't really care if you get re-raised all that often because your range isn't full of garbage. So the problem with limping is that if you are limping and you're doing it right, you probably need to be limping hands like aces and kings and ace-king as well. Right. You really don't want to limp aces-kings and ace-king because they flop. I mean, they're the best hands and you want to play, play big pots with them. 
And you also need to develop like a limp re-raising strategy with bluffs, which is kind of nasty in tournaments because then you're just playing big pots. Right. Bigger pots than you would like. So what a lot of people do is they just limp with their medium strength hands and try to see a flop. I suppose that's fine if your opponents are just really oblivious to what's going on and they're not going to do anything about it. But even in small stakes games, I think you're fine. There's someone who likes raising limpers at most tables and if you limp the 9-7 suited and someone makes it 10 big blinds, that's not a good result. Right. You'd much rather raise to two, have him re-raise you to six or seven, and then go from there. Or raise to two and just have people be afraid of the fact that you raise and then just all call you, right? I think you're going to find that when you limp, you get raised very frequently. And in general, the one thing people can really do to crush your equity is to raise you frequently. Mm -hmm. And so don't put yourself in spots where you're going to frequently get raised. And if you do find that you're frequently going to get raised, you should be quite tight. So like say they fold you in the cutoff and you know the player on the button likes to re-raise a lot. You just should be kind of tight on the cutoff, tighter than you would normally think. And that's because you're going to get re-raised a lot. You're out of position. So you don't get to play 35% of hands or whatever you should be playing from the cutoff. You have to play little bit tighter and that's okay because whenever you do raise a better hand and get re-raised you can defend way better so you always want to ask what are the opponents doing wrong and what can i do to take advantage of it and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to be open limping unless your opponents are just very very straightforward and passive which that may be who you're against and if that's the case limp with hands that flop very well don't limp hands like ace nine offsuit or nine seven offsuit because those hands flop horribly you want to limp with hands like Ace-X suited, King-X suited, suited connectors, medium and small pairs, right? You want hands that can be very happy playing a big pot multi-way. Yep. Okay, and so so when we talk about, you know, kind of raising over people again, kind of going back to that too, where, you know, there's a few limpers and we have a big hand, say you have pocket queens or something like that. And you decide that you do want to raise here. You're not going to get really tricky. You're just going to, you're just going to raise. Is there sort of a, you know, I know we said you could raise to 15 bigs, but if you're going to get called by 15, you could raise to 20 and see see how far they go with this thing. I mean, is there some sort of a a number where it just it, it just becomes ridiculous? Like if you have 200 big blinds, you wouldn't shove because you're you're forcing your opponent. You know, if somebody in the blinds wakes up with aces, you sort of force them to play optimally. You know, is there do, yeah. do, do you think like that? Like at what point is there like, well, I'm never going to raise more than this. You know, over three limpers because it just doesn't make you know, it doesn't make sense with any hand to do so that. So I don't have a whole lot of experience playing with people who are going to limp and then call a 20 big blind raise. Right, like, right. Nobody does that in my games because it's awful. So <laughs> I'm probably not the best person to ask about this, really. And sure. it's important to recognize who you're asking these questions, right? I mean, in, right. in my scenario, when, I'm, when people limp, I'm usually raising about the size of the pot. That usually yeah. gets some folds and some calls. But you have to realize when you raise with queens to like 20 big blinds, you don't want them to fold. You're value raising. You want right. to get right. So... If you find that it goes limp, limp, you make it 15 big blinds, they always fold. That's not a success. Right. That's actually a failure because they could have put in 10 big blinds out of position with some junk that's drawing pretty thin. So the goal is not to get them to fold most of the time. I mean, I wrote about this in one of my books. What's it called? Strategies for Beating Small Stakes Poker Cash Games about how um, I went and I played at Borgata 1-2 for a while and... There are many spots up where it'd be like limp, limp, limp. I'd have a hand that's not quite good enough to limp with from the small blind. Usually like queen X offsuit or jack X offsuit, maybe king X, like king two offsuit. Those are pretty good hands to consider bluffing with because they have a blocker. It's not that relevant, but if you can make it 15 big blinds there and they all fold or one person calls, you either pick up five or six big blinds preflop or one person calls. You're out of position, which is unfortunate, but they're usually just going to put you on a good hand. And then you get to steal a lot of pots post-flop. So there is 
room for bluffing if you do have pre-flop fold equity. And if you don't, just raise with your best hands. Raise with like pocket tens or better. And like ace, jack and better, or king, queen. Yeah. Andrew, did you have anything you wanted to add or ask? Sorry, I just got my mic to work and I think my wife just got oh. home. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, no, I was just, that. That's I got some of your uh, cash stuff from there, Jonathan Little, and I was just, uh, when you said raising pot for limpers, that's kind of what my brain went to because I've been bought looking at some of your stuff. So yeah, that's exactly where I was going with it. I thought you were going to say. Well, yeah, raising the pot is good. Unless they're just all going to, I mean, you really have to ask, what are they doing wrong, right? If they're folding too often, raise with more bluffs. Easy, right? If they're calling a ton, raise bigger or raise with more value hands. So really, I think a lot of people get frustrated just because they are very concerned with if they win or lose a specific hand or a specific pot or something like that. But in reality, it just doesn't matter if you win or lose a hand, which is why if you're keeping track of your results, you would know sometimes you're winning, sometimes you're going to lose. It happens, right? So try to not get stuck on the short-term results because at the end of the day, they do not matter. So how do you, uh, you know, in terms of hand ranging, I'm, I'm curious about that situation. Like I, I struggle with this quite a bit and I've had this sort of feedback. So, you know, if, if I raise or I three bet pre-flop and I get called by somebody in a certain position, you know, generally I have a pretty good handle on what their range would be to take that sort of action. You know, if I raise and somebody in the big blinds defends, you know, I have a pretty good feel generally how that goes. Uh, in a lot of these these situations where, let's say we have two or three limpers, I'm on the button, I go to seven big blinds or something like that, and two of them call, you know, two of the prior limpers that were, they limped under the gun, they limped to middle position, and then they called. I'm I'm just, I struggle so much, well, hand-ranging to some degree, but then also, you know, what sort of flops do I continue on? What sort of flop, you know, how do I treat certain flop textures? Whereas, you know, more standard situations, I feel like I have a better handle on that. Do you have any sort of insight on how should we be thinking about, you know, c-betting in those spots against, let's, let's just take that example, under the gun, middle position, they both limp, I go to seven big blinds from the button, you know, we're 50 big blinds deep or something, and they both just flat. Okay. And the, so, flop come, the flop comes like, you know, queen seven three or something like that. You know, I, I just don't know where to put these people. Like, what are they, what are they limping for, limping with and then calling seven big blinds with? So we discussed this a ton at pokercoaching.com, and basically, you don't know what they're doing. And often you can guess, you can make assumptions, but at the end of the day, they may be really tight. They may be really loose. You don't know. Right. So what do you actually have control over here? That's what you want to be asking. Well, you have control over your range and how you play it. And you don't have to just blindly continuation bet every time. Very often you want to be betting your best made hands in your draws and checking your marginal made hands in your junk when you do not have the range advantage on queen seven, three, you probably just have the range advantage, meaning if you're on your hand against your opponent's hands, you're going to be in better shape than they are on average, just because of the way ranges line up. Um, you usually have a stronger range than they do. Queen, seven, three might as well be a bunch of blanks. So you can usually bet very small and frequently. So here, if pot's 21 big blinds, you're probably supposed to bet five big blinds with everything. And that may sound kind of crazy because most people are like potting it. They're thinking, oh, I want to pot it, make them fold. Right, right. But... You have to get over that. You have to instead just think, do we have range advantage, which we do. Do we have the nut advantage? On queen seven three, no one really has the nut advantage because like, you may have sevens. You definitely have queens. They don't have queens. They may have sevens and threes. So it kind of evens itself out. Also, you have aces and kings and ace queen, and they may not. But again, you don't really know, right? So you always want to try to figure out how to play your range. And very often, it doesn't depend all that much on your opponent's ranges 
in, in most scenarios. Usually the way their range lines up with the board will determine how big you bet. Like say it was queen, jack, 10 instead. That's the spot where you should still be betting pretty frequently because you have all the big sets. You have straights, two pairs, et cetera. And they're going to have a lot of hands that connect with this board too, like top pair, and that they're not going to fold. So there you want to be just betting big across the board. So this is a very, very big topic that you decided to go yeah, into. Yeah. Well, but essentially yeah, well, you want to ask, do I have a premium made hand, a draw, a marginal made hand, or junk? And then do I want to be betting frequently or infrequently? Right, yeah. It's, it's a huge it's a, board section. Yeah, it's, it's a huge topic, obviously, the whole continuation betting. And I think we've touched on that before. But what I'm trying to get at is, is there any, is there any sort of different paradigm or different perspective that we should be operating under when it comes to c-betting when it comes to post-flop play when it's not sort of your typical i raise i get called by the big blind or somebody bets i three bet they call you know sort of those those are sort of more typical situations and now you've got a situation where people are limp calling seven big blinds i'm just wondering is there any sort of a, a fundamental difference in how we should be approaching either bet sizing or frequency of betting or is it still sort of the same same kind of foundational elements that you would have in those other situations. It's really, it's the same foundational elements. I mean, really you just have to realize that you, you have to be aggressive less often as more and more people see the flop because you should not be winning the pot as often, right? Say it comes queen seven, three, and there's eight people in the pot. Even if you have a range advantage, you probably don't want to be betting all that often just because someone's going to have something at that point. Right. But three ways that scenario is pretty much like two ways. So the situation you laid out on a very dry board, you're in position. I mean, this is like the best spot you can be in right. in a pot where it goes limp, limp, you raise, and they both call. Um, as it's more coordinated, you want to be doing more checking. So all of these basic, the, the concepts that apply heads up still apply multi-way. And when it comes to putting people on ranges, it, you, you're just going to have a difficult time doing that in general because you don't know what they're doing. I mean, unless you right. just played with them a ton. I mean, usually they're going to have suited connected stuff, suited aces, big cards. Like, who knows? They might be in there with a 9-8 offsuit or something. I don't know. Right. So and, and, yeah, that's, that's why you need to structure your range well first because that's what you have right. under your control. Yeah, and that's kind of my kind of my point that's underlying all of it is I feel like in general I've got we're, – we're getting a better handle as a community of learners on, you know, what sort of hand range do we put opponents on in some of those more typical situations. But in a situation like this where I feel like I have no idea, like I've seen people limp just call with kings and aces. I've seen people limp call with, you know, ace queen. I've seen people limp call with, you know, seven deuce. I mean, I just don't know. So when, in those situations where I feel like I have no idea what their range is, that's I think where I struggle a little bit more. Like I don't, I don't even know like what part of the range I'm attacking, I guess. Well, the thing is none of that matters. Their range does not matter if your range is structured to be fundamentally sound. It just doesn't matter what they do because imagine they do only limp and then call a raise with aces. Let's just pretend. Yeah. Okay. If they're limp folding everything else, well then they're folding way too often to your raise, right? So you're just printing money preflop by them folding too often to the raise. If they limp call with seven, two, they probably also limp call seven, three and seven, four and seven, five and eight, four and nine, four. And they have so much garbage to where they're just going to have to fold way too often post flop or stick around with nine high, either one. That's fine for you too. So whatever they're doing wrong, it doesn't matter if your range is being played in a fundamentally sound manner. So I know it's it's kind of uncomfortable to not necessarily be so concerned with what the opponent's doing because we're always taught, play the player, you know? Right. But that doesn't work so well when you don't know what the players are doing wrong. And essentially yeah. what you're is you don't know what they're doing wrong. Okay, fine. The answer to that is just worry about what you can control. You want to start adjusting to your opponent's tendencies once you know what those tendencies are. 
And you're telling me sometimes they're too tight, sometimes they're too loose. You don't know. So fine. Just, yeah, I'm just trying to like figure out, figure out like when you say, okay, do I have a range advantage on this flop? I don't have the first clue. I mean, I don't, know, but I can tell you on average you will on queen seven three. Like you just will. Sure. Okay. Yeah. 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 And then if you don't know, or if you think it's neutral for some reason, like on a slightly more coordinated board, like queen seven six or something like that. Right. Then just bet your best made hands in your draws and check your marginal made hands in your garbage. And you can't really go all that wrong. Yeah. I mean, that's what our homework challenges are at poker coaching is going through spots like this over and over again and figuring out how to play each part of your range so that it becomes second nature. Like I already know queen seven three. Yeah, I'm betting everything small. Don't have to think about it. I already know exactly what the right play is and you can't mess it up. And I know on queen seven, six, you need to be doing a little bit more checking on queen nine, eight. You need to be doing a whole lot more checking. And that's just like poker fundamentals to some extent. That right. Right. You, if you study these spots enough, you'll start seeing patterns that come up over and over and over again. And you know how to apply them. And none of that really matters. Or not, none of that really depends so much on what your opponents are doing, as long as they're playing somewhat reasonably. But if, if they're playing really unreasonably, like I said, then you're just going to crush them because either they're calling over way too often or folding way too often or whatever. It doesn't matter. Yeah. They're going to be, they're going to be doing something wrong. So what I'm, what my, my key takeaway from that is, you know, in these situations where it's limp call, limp call, all of these spots, it really shouldn't, it really shouldn't change much fundamentally as far as how we approach flop texture and seabed frequency and sizing that really yeah. shouldn't have a big impact on, on how we approach those things. The frequency goes down free to bet goes down as more and more people see the flop. Yeah, more, so, it's multi-way more than though the fact that they limp called. It's more the fact that it's multi-way. And, yeah, and how well the ranges connect with the board we are discussing. So, again, if it's queen, nine, eight, right? Someone's going to have something on this board. So you want to be betting less frequently. Like, you don't want to bet ace, king on queen, nine, eight, because somebody has a queen. If somebody has a nine or a straight or whatever. Whereas if it's queen, seven, three, you can bet whatever you want to bet because both players, both opponents are going to miss a lot of the time. But if you're six ways... Both players are not, or all six players are not going to miss very right. often. So then you don't bet with your bluffs, or at least you know the, the like the junky hands. And on queen seven three, you're just doing a whole lot of check folding whenever it's six ways. So it's not your not your board whenever you don't have anything, and that's okay. So get comfortable with being uncomfortable and focus <laughs> on the things that you can actually control, which is really how you play your range. Yeah. Well, good stuff. Well, we're, we're almost at time already. Uh, I just want to thank you for this. I mean, this is this is great. I mean, we're trying to get different different voices in there. I think um, I, I think there's it might be a case of some classic overthinking where we say, okay, well, this this whole limb calling thing, we should maybe per, be perceiving this differently. We should be you know tackling this and approaching this in a little bit different fashion. You know, what I'm hearing from you a little bit is, yeah, there's some nuanced differences, but generally the fundamentals are the fundamentals. It's range versus range. You know, if you don't know what they're doing, don't worry about it too much because they're going to lose over the long run doing, doing that sort of thing. If uh, you're playing fundamentally sound. If we're, if we're playing fundamentally sound, right. So that's if I'm not one of those. Your game. Right. Well, we got all kinds of issues with my game. But. <laughs> so yeah, Steve, you got to make sure you're playing fundamentally sound. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate that. I'll, I'll work on that. That'll be the next step is, is playing fundamentally sound. But anything else, Jonathan, as far as, you know, what anything come to mind as far as just even this topic in general that we haven't really touched on is, you know, as you're, as you're facing multiple limpers, you know, in these smaller buy-in tournaments. I mean, I just don't mind seeing cheap flops and then recognizing that I don't have to win often at all. I mean, I have, poke, I have coaches on my training side who raise the limpers a ton because in their experience, limpers just fold every time. You're telling me they don't, which is why I'm saying if they don't fold in your games to raises, then, well, just raise with the best hands, right? Um, 
I think in general, you can probably raise with roughly your regular preflop raising range against limpers, maybe a little bit tighter. So like say there's three limpers and you're in the cutoff seat, raise with maybe 25% of hands or something like that. And that's just going to be the best 25% of hands or 20% of hands, something like that. Just reasonably good hands, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe you limp with the marginal stuff like nine, seven suited type hands and pocket threes, just trying to flop sets, stuff that's you know, borderline. Um, okay. You need to do whatever makes the most sense. Figure out what your yeah. opponents respond poorly against. <laughs> right, right. And if they play too many hands and they call too often, they're essentially responding poorly to tight, aggressive poker when it comes to raising, right? So when you right. raise, and they call you, you want to make sure you're dominating them a lot. And it sounds like you will be if you're just raising with the best hands. So right. that's how you beat those players. Limp with all the stuff that flops well, raise with just the straight up best hands and extract value. That's good. Yeah. And you, you said, you know, just do whatever makes most sense. That's what we're trying to figure out. That's why we're picking the brains yeah, of I mean, the Jonathan Littles of the world. You know, most of us are recreational players. We're playing, you know, once a week, once a month. And so sometimes it's hard to just hear, well, just do what makes sense. That's where we, we got to probe a little bit. And I know you've, you've answered this question a million times and it's on your training site, but I think that's for us, we're trying to say, well, what, what makes sense? That's what we're actually trying to get at is, is right. that, so, so I think some of those takeaways of, you know, don't, don't be afraid to see cheap flops. I think that's a big, that's a big one because, you know, sometimes you just keep hearing punish the limpers, punish the limpers, punish the limpers. And that might not be the best economical, economical sense because they, they all fold when we have big hands and that's, you know, we're, we're losing some of those implied odds from some of our sets that we could hit and those things. Yeah. I mean, and most, well, all aspects of life, pretty much you want to ask, what am I trying to accomplish? Right. And always ask yourself that. And when people limp and you have a stack offsuit, what am I trying to accomplish? You may find that if you raise and get six callers, you're not actually profiting in terms of equity all that much. And if you know you're gonna get six callers every time, maybe you're just supposed to limp. The problem is people don't want to limp with a hand like ace-jack, which I'm not saying that's the best play necessarily, but if they limp with ace-jack and they just miss the flop, they get annoyed and angry. Like, oh, right. I had the best hand and now, I'm, now I lose. Like, who cares? Right. You lost that's, one big blind. Get over it. That's key. And I think a lot yeah. of people don't recognize that whenever you're playing a seven-way pot, you need to win a little bit more than one-seventh of the time and maybe even less than a seventh of the time right. if you're going to get implied odds. Because when you're making top pair or two pair, they're going to pay you way more than you pay them whenever you end up losing with, well, nothing, or maybe when you, you're dominated every once in a while. So I think people have to get comfortable with losing pots. I, I think a lot of people think they're supposed to win every pot that they play. And then I think this does come from playing just generally tight, aggressive poker against very straightforward players. I think, all right, I raise because I'm ahead. Probably ahead with ace-jack, but not a lot, especially if you get a bunch of callers. And then they feel obligated to win the hand or try to win the hand, and then they make right. top here, and they just run a big bluff and – they're making nonsensical plays and you always want to ask is what I'm doing logical. And like right here, when, when we're asking, should we raise or should we limp? Probably doesn't matter all that much. So say you do limp and then the flop comes jack high and it goes to bet and raise in front of you. You probably beat. So you need to fold. Hmm. And a lot of people yeah. just never fold. They're like, Oh, top pair. I'm all in. And then yeah. they get pissed when they lose. And well, your opponents told you to beat your beat. They went bet raise on the flop. <laughs> and a right. 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 Say it goes bet call. Now maybe you can raise for value or even just call. It's okay to just call, go to the turn and right. get away on bad turns. Very often, you know what the bad turns are. Like yeah. say it's jack nine, three, and it goes bet call and turns a queen or an eight or a 10. Right. Or a king. Like these are not particularly great turns for you. And if they keep putting their money in, you have to be able to get out of the way. Yeah. But then on the safe turns, you're pretty happy. So you just have to get comfortable playing deep stacked 
post-flop. And I think that's the opposite of what a lot of small six players want to do is they want to just re-raise and get it all in with their best hands and then see cheap flops with everything else. Right. And it's, it's not all about just getting it all in every time. Yeah. No, that's, that's really good. That's really good stuff. I mean, well, something that came out recently, um, yeah. this push fold app that uh, someone has, they released reshove charts, which is basically, do you go all in or fold after someone raises in front of you? And following a chart like that will light all of your money on fire. Like you will have an almost impossible time winning at poker if you take away your option to call. Because it's not all in or fold, it's all in call or re-raise small. You have a bunch of options, right? And there's this idea that when you get medium stacked or shallow stacked, you just have to be all in with whatever hand you're gonna play. It's just not true. If you study game theory optimal strategies, they actually do a whole lot of calling from the big blind, the small blind, the button, and even the cutoff. And you have to get comfortable seeing flops. And then like say you have 20 big blinds and someone raises and you call the button, then you just fold on the flop. You just lost a 10th of your stack. A lot of people lose their minds if they lose a 10th of their stack. Right, right. Whereas in reality, it just doesn't matter. It's the 10th of your stack. I mean, you win the pot sometimes and you're always getting an overlay because of the blinds and ante. So, and, and you have 90% of it left. Yeah, and you have implied odds. Don't forget you have implied odds. You're going right. to win decently often. You're going to win a, a bunch of chips a lot of time when you do win. So I think a lot of people in small stakes games take that mindset of whatever hand I have to play, I have to be all in with it. Yeah. And you just don't. You're supposed to play medium pots with most of your hands because usually you're going to have a medium strength hand. So get used to it. <laughs> that's well, been one of the biggest things that i've had to learn is being able to let go of pots like you flop top two or something and then you you just bet for value and somebody ends up drawing out on you it's going to happen but being able to get away from the pot is one of the hardest things i had to learn yeah whenever the, all the draws get there top two is no good i mean i'm not trying to fold top two pair very often <laughs> usually if you find you, you have no it's not fun <laughs> you probably you may be messed up somewhere along the way but like say you do have i mean this happened to me the other day in, at wpt at borgata in the early levels where I flopped top sets. I bet the flop on a pretty draw heavy board, two players called. I bet the turn pretty big, board would still draw heavy, but they all missed. Then on the river, one of the draws came in, one of the players just led, and I folded the top set. I mean, then the other player behind called with middle pair, and he was not good. He was against the flush. <laughs> I mean, <who'd> <laughs> um, but, but I mean, like, yeah, I mean, whenever one of the worst cards in the deck comes and you're against one or two or three or four people, whatever it is, if you don't have it, one of them probably has it. I mean, they're calling you with something, right? And you have to recognize that. And like there, that's the spot where we're top set. Some people just pay off every single time. And you have to get good at not paying people off because then you just save an extra 20, 30, 40 big blinds, whatever it is. And that's right. that pays off huge in the long run. Absolutely. Well, I want to honor your time. We're at, we're at time here. But uh, any kind of final words on this or, you know, what, what you want to make sure that people are aware of? We talked about some of this up front. But uh, what do you want people to know about what you're working on now and what they should be paying attention to on a rec poker nation? Go to pokercoaching.com, sign up for a free trial, go through the quizzes and homework and classes that we have for the free members. And if you want more, sign up for a full membership, go through all of that. It'll take you forever. There's basically <laughs> infinite content there. And if what I'm saying today was somewhat foreign to you, it'll make a whole lot more sense once you go through even just two or three of the challenges that I have there where you have to make your own range and say how you would play various scenarios because it really is just all about how do I play my range and how does it line up with my opponent's perceived range. And once you know that, I mean, life's kind of easy. And even if you don't know what your opponent's doing, that's the great thing about structuring your range well, because if you do that, you can't go too wrong. All right. Well, good stuff. Well, thank you, Jonathan. I appreciate uh, your investment in the past and with this as well with, with Rec Boker, you've been a, 
a good source of, of information for us. You always bring up these things that we got to think about. We got to noodle. We got to improve our game. And uh, we, we really appreciate hearing from one of the great minds in the game and one of the great ambassadors of the game. So uh, thank you for that. And, and, you know, best of luck with all of the, the poker coaching, the authorship, the playing, everything you got going on, the running the business. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me and keep up the great work. All right, Thanks, Jonathan. All right. Thank you. All right. Well, that will do it for this edition of the Rec Poker Podcast. Thanks to Jonathan Little. Thanks to Rick Day for joining us online. Thanks to Andrew Feist for joining us uh, as one of the panelists. Uh, always good to talk to Jonathan. He's very, uh, very sure of uh, how he thinks about these things. Uh, and I think so much of it for him is, is second nature. It's always sort of this, uh, I feel like it's sort of this exercise in trying to pull out of him what are those second nature things that we need to know. So uh, I appreciate his time. Obviously, he has a ton of stuff going on out of poker coaching. Go check that out. Uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, you know, as far as content goes, he's phenomenal. You know, what we're trying to do is provide good content that we actually create together and that we share together and that we kind of build this community and celebrate and encourage each other. Uh, so we have great content, um, but really we're trying to focus on building the community. Uh, I really recommend if you really have the time and the ability to dig into some content, uh, Jonathan Little's stuff is, is some of that that you should be looking into there. Uh, and that's part of why I like to bring him on. I like to see uh, different people and how they do things. And that way you know uh, who you resonate with and who you maybe want to go deeper with and some of the some of the study of poker and how you spend your your time and your money uh, learning the game uh, even further. So with that, uh, just a couple of announcements, a little bit more uh, in detail here at the end. Uh, the rec.poker site is live now. That's our go-to place. So you can tell everybody, go to rec.poker. Uh, we got all the information out there, including how you can become a member and get access to all the content, get access to being on these interviews that we have on the podcast. Uh, having discussions. We're in the process right now of figuring out how to do some meetups, uh, all kinds of stuff in the works, but rec.poker is sort of the home source for that. And then if you get on our newsletter, that's a great way to stay plugged in as well. Uh, I mentioned the NFL survivor pool, which uh, Jake Mason is uh, coordinating. We're down to 41 people left. Uh, so we pick a team every week and if they survive, uh, we move on to the next week. So uh, we have 41 folks left in our NFL survivor pool. Uh, hopefully uh, I can keep picking the team that plays the Dolphins. No offense if you're from Miami, but uh, that'll probably be how that goes for a while. Uh, upcoming stuff. Um, I'm not sure when I'm going to have this edited and out. Uh, it's about 5 o'clock p.m. Central Time right now on Monday the 23rd. About 8 o'clock tonight, we're doing a um, sort of an introduction to what rec poker is. I know some people have said, well, what is rec poker? Uh, and so every Monday night at 8 o'clock, I'm just going to do a 15, 20-minute chat for whoever wants to jump on and just dialogue around what rec poker is, what we're trying to do, if people have any questions, just as a way to send people that might be interested in this to find out more. And then at 8.30 every Monday night, uh, we're going to be doing an hour where I'm just going to be facilitating a conversation, sharing my insights, uh, really geared toward beginning players, people that uh, are new to the game or would like to talk a little bit of strategy, but even what we talk about on the podcast is generally beyond their current understanding. So really just basic stuff. Uh, it's again, just an open forum conversation. Uh, I'm just going to make myself available to answer any questions that I can for those who have, an who have questions uh, sort of about playing in a casino or certain tournaments or whatever that looks like. So every Monday night, 8.30, we will do that. This Wednesday, we got a couple of different options for you. Uh, for those of you who are members of the Rec Poker community, uh, 6.30 p.m. Central Time is our second, uh, I guess, our second session 
of our book study. We are studying Andrew Brokus's book, Playing Optimal Poker. It's basically game theory optimal for dummies is kind of how I look at it. Uh, and so if you want to participate in that, you don't have to read ahead of time. You can just join the conversation. But if you do want to read ahead of time, we're going to be looking at chapters two and three. And Cheyenne Bhattacharya is leading that discussion. So thanks to Cheyenne for doing that. And then at 8 o'clock p.m. this Wednesday, September 25th, I mentioned this uh, earlier, but uh, Matt Berkey from the Solve for Why Academy is going to join us for 90 minutes of just Q&A. Just whatever's on your mind, ask Matt. Uh, he's got a great mind for life, a great mind for poker, and it should just be a good time of just Q&A and dialoguing and digging into some things. Uh, and so we welcome anybody who's a member to participate in that. We'll do some Q&A and chat. Uh, and if I remember to look at the q and <laughs> I'll have somebody else helping me uh, on that night. So uh, that'll be a great opportunity as well. Next Monday, September 30th, Daniel Negranu is going to be in the house. Uh, he has given us a couple of shout outs on his podcast and was gracious enough to agree to come onto our show. And we're going to talk to him uh, a bit about strategy and what he's got going on in life. He's newly married and just kind of introduce him to Rec Poker Nation. Uh, I know he has a heart for growing the game and a heart for the recreational players. So that should be a really engaging conversation. Uh, and if you are a member of the Rec Poker community, uh, even if you're a member on a free trial basis, remember the first month is free. After that, it's 10 bucks a month. Uh, but even if you're on the free trial, you can go into our member area and you can click on a link that will uh, allow you to access the Zoom meeting next Monday at 6.30 p.m. And you can uh, you can ask a question of Daniel Negranu if you would like. And let's see, what else do we have to talk about? So Daniel's coming up, uh, Matt Berkey. Uh, Ryan LaPlante will be interviewed, Alec Torelli, and then we're in conversations right now with Adam Friedman to talk a little bit about mixed games. I know a number of you have been asking about that. And Maria Ho is still on the line to be able to join us as well after our interaction, uh, mine and hers, at the World Series this summer. So she's still planning on being a guest. We just have to finalize the details there. But you can stay plugged in. Make sure you get on our email list. You can do that at rec.poker, the bottom of any page. You can sign up for the email list. Uh, become a member in the community. Go check it out. Just it's a take a free month. Look around. There's content is building. We're adding probably four to six hours of content every week. Uh, we just did a long MSPT final table, which I thought was really interesting. So if you're kind of a content junkie, there'll be plenty of content out there. But it's also a great way to uh, connect with each other to build relationships. Uh, we celebrate each other's victories out there. So go check that out. Um, you can actually get to it by. Uh, recpoker.mn.co. That's the Mighty Network's name. Otherwise, just go to rec.poker, click on membership, and it'll take you right there to check it out. So I think that's it. I think that's all we have for today. Again, thanks to Jonathan Little. Thanks to Rick Day, Andrew Feist for, for joining this thing. Uh, also, thank you to Running Aces, who is our official sponsor. We appreciate you guys. And uh, with that, we will sign off and we will chat with you next week. Adios. <laughs>